Let's, let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for another evening in your word, and we'd ask that you would be kind to us in our minds, um, that we would understand what your apostles were getting at, and would help us in our lives. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Last time was chapter 1. We're going to get through two chapters. They're very short chapters. Um, loaded with stuff. Last week we were talking about um, kind of a very personal handling of Paul's view of the covenant of the Christians and what Christians are about. Uh, a, a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And he says that's the aim of our charge. He talks about his own forgiveness of sins and then he exhorts Timothy at the end of chapter 1 to hold to faith and a good conscience. Um, so there were sort of a, their personal Paul and Timothy's grasp of what it was to be a Christian. Um, so he gets around to the instruction. He left Timothy in Ephesus, he says, that you may charge certain persons. But he's, he's a, basically a mouthpiece for the apostle. And consequently, when he starts chapter 2, uh, it starts at, first of all then, this is like the beginning of the instructions. Uh, how to run the church, or what the church is about. Um, uh, not to spoil it for you, but down at, in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, If I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So that, he said, that's why I just wrote that. What we're about to go through um, he says, this is a guide to behavior in the church. Okay? So knowing that, we've got something in front of us. There are some key elements that people get a variety of opinions about. Um, there is the extent of the gospel bit. How is it a limited atonement or is it a um, uh, uh, universal atonement. Uh, women keeping their mouths shut. There's that. That's a good part. Uh, and then there's qualifications for church officers, which I think just about every church in the land has disobeyed. One way or another. Or set things aside. But there's, I think there's something... We, we go into these with those topics kind of in front of us. Because we're... we're We've had 2,000 years to develop these really aggressive attitudes about certain doctrines, and so we go to the scriptures as proof texts for those issues. We don't often see them. We almost rejoice when we run across what are the proof texts for our view. And this has got one that's very kind to the universal atonement people. Uh, I don't think necessarily it means that, but you, you got to understand that a smile washes over your face and you'll look at the Calvinist brethren and you say, so there. But you miss the point. I mean, the, 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 Paul's not writing to Timothy to straighten out his view of the extent of the atonement or to create an information about the extent of the atonement. He says, first of all, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, 
godly and respectful in every way? Let me know. <laughs> There's the optimist in the back. For those of you who are listening on the SoundCloud, uh, it's raining. Now, at this point, this is where the, the, the idea of a different theology, which side does it support, comes in and lands on us. Verse 3, this is good and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that just sounds just peachy. But Paul's not trying to get Timothy to be a faithful Arminian. He's getting Timothy to be a faithful Christian, how we ought to behave. And he says, the behavior I want, first of all, is that people should be praying. Supplicating, praying, interceding, and thanksgiving regarding all men, you might say especially powerful men, that we pray for all men, especially powerful men, so that we can have the quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. That there be, from these prayers, the production of um, the kind of life a Christian should lead. Which is an interesting list, because usually we see you know, Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. And you kind of got your own version of those, right? You know how you love, and you know how you're patient, you know how you're peaceful. But here it's a little bit more quiet and peaceable. Both the words used, quiet and peaceable, both mean tranquility. Tranquil life. A tranquil and tranquil life. Now, for the God who wants this, or we're requesting this of God, that we, he influence these, all these men, especially the powerful, so that we can lead this kind of life. And this idea is good and acceptable for God. So when he says, I want you to be praying, and it's the long list of your kinds of prayers, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Um, and you have to look at your own life as to which kind of prayer is the best, the greatest benefit to bringing about this end. And we don't know, it doesn't say whether or not that we're praying for their salvation, but that especially when it says uh, uh, kings and all who are in high positions, it may be their effect on our life. We live, we're able to sit in my backyard and talk about the Bible out loud without being drowned in a cage. Uh, crucified, th throat slit, or just arrested and thrown in the Lubyanka prison. One of the great benefits of, not because our leaders are Christians, I, you know, I can't even imagine that, but because things have happened, either because of the prayers of the saints or God's mercies, that have given us this freedom to live quiet and peaceable lives. Now the reason that this is good, it's a good thing to do this. To make these prayers is a good thing in God's eyes. The who, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth is his reason. 
it is a um, it's a common saw or a common thought in young Christians or devout Christians. They always say, you know, what this church needs today is a dose of persecution because you know in China they're they're really serious about the faith because persecution. You know, yeah, there might be something in that, but. Paul says, no, no, no. The good and acceptable idea is you pray that you have a good life. Quiet, tranquil, respectful, godly. Because God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, why, why, is, why is that? Don't you think that the Christians, when they're given you know, the promised land to dwell in, they become a little less evangelistic of um, is it um, it seems to me that we're not talking about a, a psychology of God or how, what kind of psychology he's trying to create in us um, that will get us out there evangelizing more but what kind of people represent the living God that can be seen enjoyed and, and respected the word respectful here, it's not you being respectful, it's you having the quality of being respected. That you're living a respectable life. This is good. And God desires all men to be saved. Now, the all men, you know, they, they, again, those of you who are Arminian-based or whatever, you pound the Bible and say, it says all men. Uh, it's a legitimate thing to say this is all kinds of men. All nations, all peoples. It's very legitimate. It's not any violation of where the language goes and it even fits the context a, a little bit in, in terms of it. So it's not really that important that you get this verse out of it. But you're going to say that whatever it is, all kinds of men or all men singly and severally, um, God desires that those groups get saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And this process of praying for those, everybody, and especially the powerful, so that our lives would be tranquil, that's the reason. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony to which was born at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, it, it, it's, it's almost like he's changing topics and not even telling you that there's, a, there's no turn signal. There's, but, it, but if you say no, he's on the same subject, and he's on the same subject throughout this section. That God wants us to be praying that our lives would be granted peace because of God's desire for the salvation of whatever you gr group you think the salvation was for, all or all kinds. And then he has a secondary because. Because of God's desire and then because of this truth. He says, who desires all men to be saved, for there is one God and one mediator, but it's a ransom for all. So the notion that we have 
coexist is not a bumper sticker you should own. Okay? There's not many ways to God. There is one God, and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And that narrowness is, is up against, you might say, the economy of our evangelism is that all men, whoever the all is, have to account to, for Jesus Christ to reach the one God. Because that's what Christ is doing. He's mediating between man and God. And all men have the problem. You can go through Romans and see how you can sign. Everything consigned to sin. Everyone's a sinner, Jew and Gentile alike. And uh, we have to be in a situation. What he's saying is there's a situation about the message that we have that, that would really be benefited if we as Christians ended up with quiet and peaceable lives, godly and respectful in every way. It's a, perhaps he's saying just uh, sociologically that when things are going to Hades in a handbasket, um, nothing gets out, everything is up in the air, people die unnecessarily. When you had the peace of the Pax Romana, you could walk everywhere from England to Parthia and be on a Roman road and find someone in charge that spoke Latin or Greek with a justice system that was pretty consistent and pretty decent. And that's where all the missionary journeys of Paul went on. You have that benefit. When you pray for the people, kings and people who are in high positions, we're praying that our lives be calm. Because this message doesn't need any extra hurdles to get over. There's only one end it can go to. Only one God to be reached. One Savior through which you'll reach him. And everybody, as a ransom for all, everybody has to go through that. When he says that in, uh, in Acts, I was thinking of that, Acts 17, I think it is. When he says, uh, that's John, that would explain the problem. Acts 17, he's in Athens, and he says, um, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. He was narrowing it down to just Jesus Christ, to people who had never heard of even Jewishness, probably. They'd heard about it, maybe. But he, he comes into Athens and announces the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the only God that you have to deal with, far better to be wa able to walk into a town and get that point across. And he, his ministry, is alive to this end. Because he says, for, I, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. This is where the context would allow the person who holds a limited atonement view to say, see, it's a matter of all kinds, Jew and Gentile. Yeah, that's, that's valid. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, when you realize this is his what he is recommending 
for the condition of mind of the Christian. And then you move into the next bit of instruction. He doesn't drop this. Verse 8 says, I desire then, because I just told you, first of all, I urge that supplications and prayers be made. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. He's still talking about this. This is a task of the church, that we should be praying for all men, especially for kings and those in high positions, that we would lead quiet, peaceable lives. The men should pray, and they should be doing it, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. If you step into that verse as if it's about all of your prayer life, not that it is, isn't good to pray about a lot of things, not that it isn't good to always lift holy hands with anger or, anger, or, anger or quarreling. But remember, he is representing Christianity in the world for the sake of the gospel going out, because God desires all men to be saved, that we are not the kind of people that are angry and are quarreling. Because our whole bit is about tranquility. Everything is about the peace of the believer. Godly and respectful lives. So the men, that's what he's saying, urge, I desire then, also, that women should adorn themselves. Now you stop and say, realize, this is the viewpoint of the world of the church. We are praying for the world that our lives would be set up a certain way so that the message of the very singular claim of Christians, there is only one way to God, it's Jesus Christ, and our lives should resonate with that. Because God desires all men to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. He is recommending this path to get there. And so when it says, men pray, pray about this, and you watch as men, because we are... Mm, you know, we're susceptible to not have holy hands and to do th more things than we ought angrily and quarrelingly, if that's a word. We get into fights. Almost your measure of how big you are in Christian circles is how many quarrels you get into. And did you win those arguments? And I did. But here he wants us to be praying about this. So when he says in verse 9, also the, that women should adorn themselves modestly and sensibly in seemly apparel, he's talking still about the impact we have on the world. It's another topic that people misread the text on. They think it's about dressing modestly. It is exactly the opposite. It is about not dressing modestly. Not dressing immodestly. It's not about that. It is about don't be thinking about your modesty. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Because he says, when I'm saying modestly with seemly apparel, I don't mean how you look in the mirror. Is the bodice too low? Is the hem too high? That's not the question. Because we're not trying to represent Christian women as being some gingham dress throwback, and that's the only reason 
that people would respect us as being pious as we look like the Amish. Because that's not what Christianity is about in our reputation. Our reputation is not on outward apparel, but by good deeds as befits women who profess religion. We are, in this, in this piece of advice that he's giving Timothy, Timothy is trying to take a theme into the church because God's desire that people see us, that our, uh, that our life resonate with these qualities, and so the men should be praying to that end, watching their own angers and quarrelings so that they don't have those. That strips them back down to um, not wrangling, right? Our religion is not one of wrangling. And the Christian women, it's not that of being looking prissy. The, the idea is that you be good. And do good. Quietly. As it says next, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. Because, boy, man, that verse, that's a favorite. I always like that. Because it just turn, translates to the shut the heck up moment. But it's really probably not about that. You know, it's probably not about whether or not women ought to speak in church. Now, I'm, you know I'm not a liberal. I have strict standards about women teaching. That's the next verse, but... But in terms of um, this, because the topic is tranquility, the reference, of, as a matter of fact, the same word for quietness, woman should learn in quietness. When you translate it silence, it comes across like zip it, zip. No, no prayer requests out of you, late old lady. In uh, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, eleven. Yeah, Second Thessalonians three eleven. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work in quietness and to earn their own living. The suggestion here is not whether or not a woman makes a peep when she passes the narthex, but whether or not she minds her own business, she knows what world she's making. She doesn't step into another world. It tells her, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over men. She is to keep silent. That's, um, <coughs> that's more, less of no noise to keep her from teaching, but she has taken on the life, the life that he is recommending across the board. The men are supposed to be praying for this quiet life. We are to be laboring to live this quiet life because God desires all men to repent. All men, you know, unless you want adventure all the time, you're not trying to create a religion that goes to war with other... You know, I love war. I love it. But I love war as everything that has to do with nation states, nothing to do with the church. I don't want a religious war. Just leave me alone. Leave everybody else alone. 
our task is to not have um, uh, the church at war. The church is not represented by, you know, more Jehus, you know, for he is Jehu because he drives furiously. That's not what we're called to be. And here it's calling women to be the same way as the men are called to be. Because this general word here in Thessalonians was for everybody, people who weren't working. They should live in quietness. It's the same kind of quietness. Now, with all submissiveness, they should learn that we say, well, what are we, are we here about establishing our own way of life and making our own... Um, uh, temperaments, or what are they called, personalities. They have letters nowadays for people. I don't know what they are, nor do I care. You're not allowed to have any of them, so might as well flush them now, because the Lord has ones he wants. He wants peaceful, quiet, holy, and what's the husband? Respectful. You can add love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All of those you're required to have. Now, the woman's part is to take on her task in quietness, like the man's part to take on his task in quietness, because this is the kind of life we're supposed to have. Now, it's actually an attractive life. It is not like trying to come up with a, like we're all become Trappist monks and, and, and never speak again and shuffle around your yard, you know, making, making silent prayers to God. We, don't, we know that we're going to rest this book is, is more lively, but you want to say this is the kind of life normal Christians were being enjoined to have. This is not the kind of life Paul necessarily had. He was going to before Caesar and he was getting into debates and all the rest. It's not that those are illegitimate, but our desired end for the average Christian, Paul desires that we should be praying for this tranquility, for the good of the spread of the gospel. And that the women should be looking for that tranquility in the path that they do, which is learning in that quietness and submitting to it. When he says, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over men, she is to keep silent. It's a direct delineation. That in Paul's idea of the perfect church, two things would be reflected. Because, remember, the desire is not a functional misogyny. That's, we're not trying to find a way that how can we make sure that the women never overthrow our power? You have to remember, you're better looking than we are. You'll live longer. You're smarter. But we're in charge. Because we can knock you out. Now, a lot of men feel that war between the genders is what Paul is. is he's one of us, and he's, he came through nobly, gave us some good passages. Um, well, it's not a, it's not a, just like the other passage was not a passage about free will or determinism, this is not a passage about feminism and patriarchy. This is a passage about the tranquil and quiet life. What does God want it to be? As you have to ask yourself, does God want my life to look a certain way? Seems like he does. I'm imposing modern arguments on this passage. It still comes out the same. I, I don't permit a woman to teach. 
or have authority over men. Now he recommends in Titus that they teach other women. We see that in private conversation with Priscilla and Aquila, they both taught Apollos. It's not that women don't have a sensible thing to say. I relate a story. I had a girlfriend, not Leslie. Lived in Claremont, California. Went up to visit her on leave. We got into a conversation late Saturday night about her teaching a, at her church, and she was teaching a mixed Bible study. This passage came up, and I laid it out for her and what I thought, and she didn't like it. She was kind of a strong-willed woman, but it was the text first. So the next morning she said, well, why don't you just sleep in? I'm going to go and resign my position during Sunday school, and, and then I'll come back and pick you up and take you to church. Well, I guess on the way out the door that morning she told her father, a dear Christian Assemblies of God man who had a very simple faith and a very simple belief that his wonderful daughter shouldn't be denied by that troglodyte lying in his bed. So the first thing I knew that morning was an old man yelling at me about how God had used Corey Ten Boom for the good of the kingdom. And that was the argument. So that's a little bit of my life. <laughs> I get yelled at by old men. Um, the idea is where does, what is Paul telling Timothy to try to create of the Christian life in that church? For what reason? He gives two reasons here. For Adam was formed first, so creation rank. Now he says that in another place, I think it's Corinthians. Is it Corinthians? Somewhere. Mm, I don't spot it right off. Where, where he says, uh, um, about, um, The order of birth, I uh, forget where it is, um, uh, the order of creation and Adam was not made for woman, but woman for man. First Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11. I was like, oh, I was looking at 15. That would, yeah. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So there's the nature of the creation order that Paul seems to think is a reason that there's a, a preeminence in creation. But then there's also a preeminence in the fall uh, and in history, how the story goes. Now, I have known men who are bigger fools than women I have known uh, that you could gull pretty easily. The reason is not, can I find the exception and do, because when I, well, we know they're going to be. There's, there's going to be strong women and weak men. There's going to be um, people who fill in these categories wonderfully. But Paul says, I don't permit it. These are my reasons. Then you have to say, is the predominance of the reasons reason enough for me? Do I, do I decide to go with my read on someone? Um that I, 
Because as soon as I say, yeah, I finally met a woman. Well, my mother was a great teacher of the scriptures and a great benefit to a lot of people. But uh, I still wouldn't recommend that she teach men. Um, that was uh, um, me sticking with this. Because if once I opened the door and say, well, no, my mom's pretty good at it. Then, if some other church says, well, I think she's pretty good at it, and they're wrong, they, because there's no barrier anymore, there's no line drawn. If say, am I, am I going by our current um, philosophy of gender to trump Paul's philosophy of gender? We think we're primarily equal. He thinks we primarily aren't. Who's right? Well, he's more important than you. He's got a book in the Bible. He's got a number of books in the Bible. Jesus Christ called him out to this purpose. So you don't have to agree with St. Paul. You do have to understand that that's what he's saying. He's not saying something else. He's saying his limitation of women having the roles of teaching over men in the church is due to the Adamic order and the order of the fall, or the nature of the fall. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So I don't let women teach. Now, what's interesting in my own storyline is that um, this next verse, my wife taught me. So, I don't know if that was disobedience or what, but because this next verse, again, we pull verses out and throw into it uh, what we are talking about outside the text when we, um, when we looked at it. It says, yet woman will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with modesty. It just suddenly looked that not only are women so inferior, we can't let them open their yaps, let alone teach anything, God forbid, that they pick their head up from the quilting hoop long enough to to say something dear heavens but they don't even they're not really quite human because they have a different salvation you know because men get to have faith and think about God and repent women have to bear babies sounds almost Mormon because that's what yet woman will be saved through bearing children. She continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. That there's a necessary condition for her to go to heaven that she not be barren. But Leslie pointed out to me that well, first off, one of the very standard eisegetical moves of reading something into the text is taking two thousand years of Christendom where we have venerated certain words and we see them in terms of what we always talked about when we met saved. Made well, preserved. The topic here is whether a woman is deceived, right? Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet a woman will be saved, preserved, through the bearing of children if she continues in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. That recommendation goes back to verse 11. Let a woman learn in the quietness of her life, in submission, and that as she builds a home, as she builds a home in the, in the constructs of faith, 
love holiness with modesty, which again is referring back to that modesty of good deeds, she will be preserved from that error that women carry. Now, I don't mean to think that any of you, you're all really smart girls, but I have known girls I was able to convince that bison had five legs. The proof was I showed her a buffalo nickel on which it had four, and I then told her that was the difference between a buffalo and a bison. And since I proved it with the buffalo, she believed me about the bison. I think I convinced my sister, she was young, that turkeys had three legs, and they stood like stools. And that's where all the extra packs and Safeway of the drumsticks came from, because it was too disturbing to see a three-legged animal in the, in the oven, so they'd always trim that third one off and put it in the drumstick package. I, I, made a, I, made, I could have been a false teacher like nobody's business. I'm gifted. I can think of interesting stories. Now, I've been, I've been gulled myself, though. But here, I want you to be looking not at how the verses land on you in the debate that comes at us now, but in what Paul's trying to do to the church through Timothy. He's trying to create men praying very sincerely, setting aside the anger, the quarreling, the women setting aside the prissy attitudes of a dress-up modesty and taking on good deeds and an established life that learns and preserves themselves against the danger of this world by creating households. Now, if you don't agree with this, like I said, I, again, but I, I have a policy of not attempting to convince people about things. But I, I really want you to understand what he's saying and then disagree if you're in that position. But don't try to make him say something else so you can agree. Understand what he says so you can agree or disagree. And then if you disagree, you can just say, okay, why do I disagree? And who was I... Who was I listening to? What reasons do I give for not believing the world should be pursuing this kind, or the church should be pursuing this kind of tranquility? There are people who don't like the tranquil suggestion. You know me, I, I'm a big fan of peace. I'm a big fan, not the peace peace, but you know, uh, the state of ease. Having things in their place. And this is a, a pattern of God putting us in the kind of place he wants us to be how he wants the church to be structured so we can win people to Christ. Because my own thought, I think it's just a, a, a speculation, but I think behind this is what we have in Christ in this life is everything everyone wants, and that's why they go to war. That's why they fight. That's why they pursue wickedness. They're trying to find the peace. We have it. And the more we can display it faithfully and have the church structured to promote that peace, that the women understand how they're promoting the peace. They're creating households in faith, love, holiness, with good deeds that befit a woman that professes religion. The men are making sure their hands are holy and they are not angry in quarreling men and that they are praying, requesting this end, because they know their God and they know what their God wants evangelistically. If you disagree with it, 
you, you don't just go, I disagree. If you disagree with it, you have to say, well, uh, uh, who do I agree with and why do I agree with that view? Because every view that we have has an appeal to some kind of epistemic authority. And you've got to be as fair, any doubt you put on the scriptures about an idea that Paul says, you've got to be ready to put it on wherever you got your idea. You know, when I say, I was talking to a woman the other day, it was, I, you know, I don't really think the Bible is true because it was written by men. And I said, and you are, you know, your, your idea just came out of a human being. If you were the originator, you probably aren't, but if you were an originator of this, you suffer under the same guilt and the same doubt, but you're not as ready to doubt you as you are to doubt the Bible because you will always tell you what you want to hear. And the Bible tells you what you don't want to hear. So it's really not that it was written by men, because you believe you. So when we disagree, least it say that is really what it's saying. He really does limit the church under Paul's uh, Timothy's instruction to have these qualities. He goes on to more structure of the church. Chapter 3, and it's a real break thematically. The saying is sure, if anyone aspires for the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. Now it's a, it's a the chapter break, of course that didn't exist, seems like a topical break, but as you look through what he does with the bishops and the deacons, you're going to see the same issue of our reputation and what kind of reputation the manners of a bishop should have. Now, I'm saying bishop. Bishop is a word that is an invention of, of mispronunciation. Just over the centuries, people mispronounced episcopos so badly that it came out bishop instead of episcopos. So episcopos means epi over scopos seeing. So an overseer. So some translations will not have bishop there. They'll have overseer. Yeah, elder, presbyter, do what you want with it. Leaders of the church. It's a noble task. That means it's an excellent. The word is it. It's a, it's a high task. It's an important task. Um, but look at what the elder, the bishop, the overseer is supposed to be. He must be above reproach. That's sort of a titular phrase. Like it when it says in Titus, he must be blameless. And then it lists the various things he ought to be blameless about. This is above reproach. People can't speak ill of the believers. Husband of one wife. Temperate. Sensible. Dignified. Hospitable. An apt teacher. No drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome and no lover of money. Now if you're thinking coming out of chapter 2 of what he wants the Christians to be like. This is, you know, I think this is a good thing. You look in Titus 2, there's also uh, requirements there, a similar list. Um, so it's a, it's a constant in the church. It's not just Ephesian Christians who needed this. Uh, Cretan Christians needed it as well. But this idea, the temperance, sensibility, dignity, not a drunk, not violent, not quarrelsome. Those are all good in their own right, but they also 
are things that Paul is trying to create in all of us to be beyond reproach. The kind of life that we should have in front of the outsiders. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. Now here it just has submissive and respectful. Do what they're told with no back chat. Titus lets you know, Titus 1, that the children of the bishop have to be believing, not insubordinate, and not profligate. <coughs> so insubordinate is the one that is re repeated here, submissive and uh, respectful, that sort of is tied up and in not insubordinate. They do what they're told with a good attitude. But it also includes older children because profligacy, which is just a word you want to use every chance you get, um, means wild living. And now I've seen three-year-olds, not pure angels of Christian virtue like Elijah, but I've seen kids that seemed like they were hell on wheels, but it was just because they were little and you couldn't imagine that much wickedness in somebody that little. But profligacy is an adult crime. This is pastors who have profligate, at least young adult children. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? Now, what kind of household? It's just minimal. It doesn't say they have to pass some theology exam. No, they just have to be believers, respectful and submissive, and not wild. He's created a home that is, the, remember, this is involved, these things involve the home. They involve the woman, you know, learning in this quietness, submitting to the teaching, and growing, raising her children, and building a faith, love with modesty of good deeds. We're looking at a home and hearth side recommendation, and the pastor, the bishop, the guy who's doing the teaching, has to be above reproach. He's got to show that not only can he do it on the ground, that his production of tranquility has occurred in his home, he is able to produce this kind of Christianity in people. Because this is a, a basic test whether this kind of life, it's not he's a good manager because um, like if you learn somebody was a camp counselor and the job he was was going to be a uh, a squad leader in the military. The military is going, you know, he was a camp counselor at one point. That shows leadership. Uh, they were very different. Uh, making gimp wristbands at camp is not um, what the military needs out of you. This is exactly the same thing. It doesn't just show management skills. The care is the same care. Belief, submission, not to him, but submission to God and not profligate, having the tranquil life. He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil, which is usually sidetracked. This is not one that a lot of denominations fail at because they've got just a long professional school you got to go to to get the sheepskin. Is it a sheepskin in theology? I don't know. 
but they obey it and disobey it. They'll probably obey it inadvertently just because of the amount of time it takes to get a church. But it's not saying don't have recent converts because we don't like young people. Timothy's pretty young. Maybe in his 30s, maybe late 20s by this point. The problem is not the youth. The problem is what young people, just like the problem with what women are kind of like, is that's a real compliment to a young person. The problem is conceit. And that we don't seem to have a standard about in evangelical circles. It seems every mega pastor is a bit of conceit that just is beyond belief. There are other paths to the pride than just being a recent convert. The concern is the conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders or he may fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So various things have got this stumble, conceit, snare, fall into reproach, snare. He must be well thought of by outsiders. The non-Christians have a vote in your bishops. That's, that's all it's saying. They've got a say. And the fact that the non-Christians hate your bishop, you've got to decide whether is it the same reason they hated Christ. Do a lot of the non-believers love your bishop? Because they see this life. He's a temperate, sensible, not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome. But it brackets the reproach issue. You got this reproach in verse 2. He must be above reproach. You don't want to fall into reproach. You must be well thought of. Now you got to balance that. You got to say, woe to you when all men speak well of you. But uh, there it is. Is there a... Sometimes we pastors who are who've got definite views and are urged to start a movement know how to poke the world in the eye pretty good, but usually there's not anybody in the world that didn't get poked once they start poking people in the eye. People love Jesus Christ, and the leaders of the Jews hated them, hated him. So it's a matter of is it just the regular non-believer that hates you because you're a jerk, or are you? someone that just threatens the power of bad men so they hate you and want you dead but everybody else who's not a believer thinks pretty highly of you remember Paul had when, in Ephesus when Paul that the riot was going on and the guys that tried to get him to not go into the theater were two Asiarchs who were priests of Caesar worship and they were friends of Paul two Asiarchs priests of Caesar worship were friends of Paul and they wanted to not have him not go in the theater lest he'd be killed. That's a pretty good relationship with unbelievers. Because if you don't reproach, remember, they are all witnessing this faith of ours. They are witnessing whether or not you want to have a non-believer come into your church and just look at the joy and the peace of the families and the marriages and the people there and go, 
I want this kind of thing. What, what is this? What are you doing? Why is this so wonderful? Deacons, likewise, must be serious. Diakonos just means servant. Must be serious. Now, diakonos, are the, we know from Acts that they were created um, to uh, distribute the food uh, equitably uh, between the people who were stuck in Jerusalem. Um, so they must be serious, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for gain. Now there you stop and say, what are the deacons doing? They're, the deacons are dealing with the, they are logistics. They are taking care of things, getting it done. And their qualities of life, they re, what they represent in this world, is a practical task, because they have practically good characters. They don't have the kind of character that looks at the money box like Judas did and used it as their own personal kitty. How many churches have been ripped off by church treasurers who just had too much authority to write checks? Not addicted to much wine, not greedy for gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, they have to be solid Christians. Because sometimes practical people, they're not really, you know, they know how to move furniture and serve a meal and they don't want to talk the... No, they've got to hold the mystery of the faith with the word clear there means purified. They're, they have to be a truly saved individual, passed from death to life. However you found out that, they have to be that. But they also have to have qualities that show that they're a sensible, not duplicitous, not disingenuous, they're not double-tongued. They're not saying one thing to one person. They're not getting along with everybody by promising everybody everything. Solid Christians. And let them be also tested first. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. The women, likewise, and I, I don't think anybody says, well, I, I don't understand what that means. Well, you let them help set up whatever has got to be set up. You give them a task to do and they see if they fade in doing it. Whatever the practical task is. If they prove themselves blameless, let them become deacons. If somebody says, oh, I'm really interested in the audiovisual department at your church, man. And you say, okay, yeah, knock yourself out. We let us know what the budget's going to be. And, and then either three out of five Sundays he doesn't make it because he's slept in and you say, yeah, you're a nice guy, you love the Lord, but you're not blameless. We need somebody who'll show up and do the job. Like The women, likewise, must be serious. Now, frankly, I think this is women deacons. I don't think it's the wives of the deacons. If it's the wives of the deacons, they are deaconettes, that's why it's given qualifications, you know. So it doesn't really matter whether you think it's their wives, and that's sort of an automatic that a married deacon gets his wife to go clean up the mess in the nursery room with him all the time. But, or whether it's individual women. The word does not tell you. It can mean wife, it can mean any kind of, any kind of woman. Gives qualifications for her, though. Now, oddly enough, if it were not a deaconette, if it were not a deaconette, why didn't it give qualifications for the wife of the bishop? I mean, if, if the wife of the deacon has to meet some qualification, why not the wife of the bishop, for heaven's sake? They should at least have some rules for them. They can't be gossips. 
addicted to much wine or something. But it doesn't even mention that. Not it must be serious, no slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now the reason I, I think it's very legitimate that this is women deacons is one, we're not violating what Paul also says about their the, the roles that they would be allowed in teaching. This is a servant of the church. A lot of people, a lot of denominations have made deaconing a high position rather than a serving position, and so they got a, a crisis. They, it's a voting like board of the church or something like that. In Romans uh, chapter 16, it mentions a lady deacon. Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Sencrea, that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. The long description, not just the words that he used, is, you can't just say, well, it just means servant, because she comes in with some logistical authority, and, and she has a reputation with Paul of being really good at this. So, um, even though it says in verse 12 here in Timothy, um, the, uh, let deacons be the husband of one wife, and somebody go, aha! The deaconette can't have one wife unless we're going for gay marriage. Husband of one wife, and let them manage their children and households well. So that's an argument for it, husband and wife deking principle, because husband of one wife and let them manage their children and their households well, the them. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. And we saw that with Phoebe. Look, she got a, a, a kudo from the Apostle Paul in the Book of Romans about how much of a benefit she was. And you see other situations where um, uh, Paul is talking to Euodia and Syntyche. Where is that? Philippians? Good to have someone who's been at Bible school. Um, Philippians um, what was the reference? 4, 2, and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyc to agree in the Lord. And I ask you also, true yoke fellow, to help these women, for they have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, who, whose names are in the book of life. So, Phoebe on one hand, getting good standing, in Euodia and Syntyc, uh, not playing well with each other, and they get a, I mean, it's a negative mark. You're mentioned in the Bible like, uh, um, what's the guy's last week, uh, um, Philetus and whomever. Um, you get mentioned uh, positively or negatively, but here, anybody who's going to play out the deaconing um, task, they get a good standing. Now, tragically in the church today, and for probably for quite a while, getting it appointed to low-end church officialdom, there, those are desired slots that a lot of people in their social uh, resume like to get. I'm a deacon of the church. I sing in the choir. Because they like the standing. But really, the which is a benefit of it, 
But if they serve well, it's a, it's good standing. But primarily, you should be saying the primary thing is my desire to serve, and the secondary desire is also great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Serving in the midst of this kind of church, the kind of church that is being shaped by Paul's urging to Timothy that we be turned into um, really peaceful people and that our measure of our church officers is also creating a responsible, dignified, hospitable goodness. Our women are not all about some artificial modesty, but they're about being good. That their modesty is how good they are. That produces, when you've been around Christians who've done it correctly, that's what you want. You want to find, you want to be looking to build bodies up like Timothy's trying to do in Ephesus that builds up a body that impresses people. Right, my father just gave me a couple more copies of Agape Leadership about the life of R.C. Chapman, which I love this small book, on a real saint of the late, you know, um, 1800s. Because we don't know many that have lived life as Christ would have us live. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that, if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth? This is, this is being held up. What, what Paul is recommending, that this is how they live, taught by Timothy, recommended by Paul, it holds up the faith solidly in front of things. This is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to be built on. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. Now this is possibly a, a psalm or a hymn from the early church because it's an odd, it's, a, it's like a, a chorus. Um, I broke it up a little bit because as I was looking at it the last minute before I printed it out, I noticed that it was kind of in couplets because it was flesh, spirit, angels, nations, world, and glory. You know, um, that, that it, but it really just is a long set of phrases. But when you look at our, uh, and it's not trying to carry um, like, a, like you do with the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount, some kind of constitution of the ultimate issues of the faith, but it's stating the greatness of the mystery of our religion. He was revealed in the flesh. He was upheld in the spirit witnessed by things in heaven but preached to the things to the people on earth it convinced us we believed and he was taken to glory in glory actually taken up in glory in majesty and in uh, splendor that's something that as we think about our faith from a different axis point rather than the usual uh, images we have of the faith or the usual leaderships sort of if you can I, I, there's a lot of Christian leaders I admire but for the moment for the next bit flush all of them out of your mind and say is it, what's being built here what is being built in the New Testament not what's being built by Christendom Christendom has got an awful track record and occasionally we get some good guys out there but Look at what Paul is recommending for us. This mystery, this wonder of Christ in us, um, is a mystery of peace. 
So let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Glad it didn't pour on us, Lord. And we are grateful for your word and we're grateful for the peace that you're giving us. Help us understand it more in the path to it. How we should pray. How we should live. In your son's name, amen.